Good afternoon. It's not afternoon. It's not even close to afternoon. Still feels like afternoon to me. But anyway, hi, everybody. Good evening and welcome to the Mythgard Academy to our 14th session of Sauron Defeated, in which we are going to come to the end of the Notion Club papers. Just a few kind of miscellaneous things to wrap up tonight. Uh, we've covered the bulk of things. There's the very tail end of uh, the Visions with uh, Alfwina and stuff, the Anglo-Saxon visions that, that uh, uh, Jeremy and Latimer are starting to at the end. And then a few miscellaneous things from Christopher's final notes and additions uh, at the end. Uh, and then maybe a question or two. Um, so, um, so we'll see. <laughs> Sax says, arguably, it isn't even evening anymore. Oh, it totally is for me. In fact, this is when evening begins. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, 10 o'clock is the beginning of the evening. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But th maybe that's just on my personal calendar. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, um, today, of course, this week is the beginning of our fall fundraising campaign as well, though. So I wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about that. Um, the theme of our campaign this year is the next adventure. It's a huge year uh, for Signum University. Huge year. Um, last year, the theme of the fundraising campaign uh, was uh, on the doorstep, uh, both because, you know, I, I love the on the doorstep image. I'm, of course, thinking of Chapter 11 of The Hobbit when I'm talking about on the doorstep. Um, the, the, my impetus uh, for choosing that as our theme last year was the sense that I had that we were on the cusp of something, right? You know, uh, things had not yet changed, uh, but we were at the point to begin changing uh, and uh, and doing some new things. And this year, we're setting off on some new things, and it's going to be really, really exciting. Uh, so I am excited uh, to share that with you. I'm going to be giving more details about what I'm talking about, about like what chapter two of Signum University is going to look like. I'm going to give some more information uh, about that at the uh, State of the University address on the 7th of October. Um, so uh, definitely tune into that to, uh, to hear more about what's coming uh, at Signum University. In the meantime, we have our fall fundraising campaign, and of course, I always look forward to our fundraising campaign. Uh, thanks to the generous donations of, uh, especially to everyone who gives, uh, you know, has gives a monthly pledge, right? Um, uh, you know, has been doing a monthly donation. Um, you know, with those carried over from this year, with the you know the, the steady support that we have had from our monthly donors, we already have gifts and pledges of thirty six thousand dollars for uh, uh, for our fundraising camp for our annual fund. Uh, for this year. Our goal for our annual fund uh, for uh, this year, for the 2019-2020 fiscal year, is 70000 We uh, had our, our goal of 60000 last year, and we raised like almost $72,000 last year for the annual fund. It was a, a, a remarkable year. Um, so we're, we're trying to get back to, to $70,000 uh, uh, for... Uh, uh, for for this year, uh, for our annual fund. And the annual fund, you know, that is really sort of covering the essentials. That's really keeping the lights on at Signum University. The annual fund is, is enormously important. Um, so yeah, that's, um, uh, that's, that's the, 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 the primary focus here during the fundraising campaign. So I certainly hope that you will take the opportunity uh, to make a tax-deductible donation to Signum University 
uh, here sometime. Uh, again, if you are already a monthly donor, thank you so much for that. Um, if you would like to become a monthly donor, that is easy to do, and it's a really efficient way to make a very big impact at Signum University. Uh, of course, one-time gifts are also good. Um, so let me just show you our annual fund page. If you go to Signum University and then just click on donate in the top right corner, it'll take you here. Um, and this will uh, give you some, of course, we have the link through to the donation uh, page. Uh, this will, you know, give you some 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 overviews of some of the things that we're talking about. And Brandon, yes, there's that there's that mysterious new branch on the Signum tree, which I'll be talking about uh, at the State of the University address, giving you a little bit more information about that. Um, and because uh, the Signum tree has been growing uh, and is going to be growing more uh, as we move forward. Um, also on this page, you can see campaign events. Uh, so we're doing uh, a number of different things. Of course, New England Moot is happening this weekend. It's still there's still time uh, to sign up for New England Moot. Um, uh, so if you're if you're in the area and would like to come, really great uh, crowd uh, coming to New England Moot this year. Our first ever New England Moot. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm going to do a broadcast from New England Moot probably on Saturday afternoon when we have some sort of casual free time hanging out. Uh, I'll do a little Twitch broadcast, uh, probably from my phone, um, but it's it's uh, it's 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 going to be fun. And then next Saturday, a week from Saturday, on October fifth, uh, will be my annual Lotro Marathon, where I'm going to take my my top character Wigand through uh, the next stage of the epic quest line, play him through the storyline. From he's in Minas Tirith now, and I've got to go find the Woeses, and I've got to go uh, uh, see the Ride of the Rohirrim, right? So that's going to be uh, really cool. Um, anyway, so that's what I'll be doing on uh, October fifth. State of the University address, as I said, is on is on October seventh. We'll be broadcasting that on Twitch as well as uh, on um, uh, on uh, here on GoToWebinar. So you can, if you want to sign up. Uh, on the net mood and, and appear here as many of you are, you can just click on the event page here and it will take you to uh, uh, a page where you can get the registration link. Mythgard Movie Club is happening. Uh, Middle Moot, of course, coming near the end on the 12th. We'll do another special broadcast from there. And then our big campaign finale on the 19th. Um, the uh, annual webathon is going to be that day. So that will be the end event uh, of the, uh, uh, of the of the campaign, so yeah. Do I have any a notion for how long I'll be doing the Lotro Marathon? Oh, twelve to fourteen hours, probably. I'm guessing it's going to start at noon and I go until at least midnight. I'm sure uh, that's the that's the tradition there for those. Um, yep, yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be it's <laughs> that one's going to go on for some time. That's uh that's an annual tradition. Um, okay, so and then of course, if you keep scrolling down a little bit further on this page, you can see the inf the details about our donor appreciation program. This is much uh, much like last year, and of course, again, if you if you have monthly donations and your you know your monthly donations will be continuing, and that means you'll be continuing at these same levels. If you were you know enjoying some of these uh, uh, some of these gifts from last year. And we'd like to continue enjoying them. Like, for instance, if you had made a $200 donation, you know, which amounts to about, what, like $15 a month-ish, somewhere in that category. Um, uh, yeah, $15 a month. In fact, there it is right there. Um, 
uh, and then you are, have been a member of Signum Fellowship for this past year, which is a new thing we did this past year, which I have loved. Uh, we've been doing meetings for that every month. Um, and so I have a special meeting with the Signum Fellowship folks to kind of give them an update about what's been going on at Signum University. So they get sort of the, the kind of insider backstage. So people in the Signum Fellowship already kind of know what I'm going to be talking about uh, at the uh, State of the University address because I, I was telling them about it last month. Um, but anyway... Um, so again, it, it, but like, you know, if, you, if you've been on the fellowship and when I continue on the fellowship, uh, again, if you're donating monthly, then that will continue. Uh, but of course you, you would need, if you, you need to give another $200 gift for this year, uh, uh, if you're doing a one-time gift to, uh, uh, to continue. So anyway, those are, so again, you just click through on any of these buttons and it will take you to our easy online donation form. And there you go. You just fill in the simple information and make your donation for which we are extremely grateful. We've had such a wonderful year this year, thanks to your generosity. Uh, and I really hope that you will consider giving uh, to Signum again. You know that I don't spend a lot of time all year long asking for money. Um, we very, we really very much need it. Signum is a, is a true nonprofit operating like a nonprofit. Um, uh, and really just depending upon uh, the support of folks, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you guys who have made this happen from the beginning. Mythgard Academy, especially, of course, really dates back to our very first campaign. It's where we started. Uh, it's uh, the, exactly the time when we started the Mythgard Academy. Um, so all of you guys who have been following along Mythgard Academy have been some of our longest standing supporters at Signum University, which I, I, I value tremendously. Um, so, uh, yes, if you donate monthly, you still get the donation reward. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, yep, absolutely. That will happen if you're, if you are donating monthly. And like I say, those monthly donations add up enormously, even though the vast majority of people who donate monthly are donating at like the 10 and $15 range per month. Uh, those add up a lot so that, you know, all of our monthly donations put together, are almost half of our entire annual fund now. Um, you know, we, we, we started essentially the campaign with already, uh, with already was like $32,000 is where we began, um, in pledges, you know, from our monthly donors. So that's, it's just remarkable again. And, and, you know, so the, the more monthly donors we get, the more, the more secure our annual fund becomes and the more we can kind of, worry less about just keeping the lights on and begin really thinking about, you know, being able to have the ability to, 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 you know, the greater flexibility to move forward. And again, if not for the generosity of everybody over this past year, it would be much harder for us to do what we're doing and what we're planning. Um, so we really want to, we really want to keep that up. Uh, so again, that's why we're looking to hoping to hit that $70,000 uh, annual fund goal again this year. All right. Um, so, oh yeah, I know. I knew there was something else I was forgetting. Um, one thing I want to do again this year, like I did last year, I want to um, do a, a, a drawing from among the donors, from among you guys, from donors who are uh, attendees and viewers. I know many of you view this asynchronously, um, uh, view and listen asynchronously. I want to do a, a, a drawing, just to, I guess, sort of an, an extra way to uh, to sort of 
give presents and and uh, and and show how how grateful how grateful we are uh, to you guys. So we're going to do that like we did last year. So if you have made a donation of any size, uh, including monthly donations, so if you have a recurring monthly donation that counts. Um, and you want to uh, be entered in our drawing for the Mythgard Academy, then send an email to donate at signumu.org uh, and uh, just mention that you would like to be entered into the Mythgard Academy drawing. Um, so that is, again, you just email donate at signumu.org uh, and just say you want to be entered in the Mythgard Academy drawing. Um, what will happen is on the day of the campaign finale, I'm going to draw three winners. All the winners will get uh, an anytime audit uh, uh, class. So you'll get access to any course in our in the Signum course catalog that you'll get to the lecture materials uh, for any of the of the courses on on uh, the, uh, the in the Signum catalog that you like. Your choice. And for the grand prize winner, they also get a special Mythgard Academy prize, which is the ability to unilaterally nominate any book that you want. Now, this is not the normal nominations. You can enter any book that you want as a finalist in our next election. Like the, the book that you want will be on the short list uh, for uh, our next election. So anyway, I would like to just so that's. um, Yeah. But of course, I, I do want to emphasize if you attend multiple broadcasts, Right, you should only enter one. You have to choose which one you want to enter in, um, uh, and you know you can kind of make your choice however you want to enter. But because we are doing this for the several different broadcasts that I do, we're doing this for exploring the Lord of the Rings and for the Mythgard Academy and for film film. Uh, so you know, yeah, you, you, you need to choose one. Um, but um, anyway, so that's um, this is right. So so keep in mind. The nomination prize, it's not the same thing as like unilaterally choosing the book, right? There will still be the vote. There'll still be the election. We don't want to circumvent the election because that's an important process. Um, but you will get to enter one by yourself into the shortlist, straight into the shortlist. Okay. You know, how it fares from there, we'll have to see. Then you have to, you have to, you know, uh, canvas for votes like everybody else. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's, um, uh, so that's the grand prize for the Mythgard Academy drawing. And again, we'll, we'll do the drawing there. So anytime. So again, if you're listening to this asynchronously, don't worry. You've probably not missed it. <laughs> if if you're listening to this like a year later, well, hey, we'll probably do it again in 2020. But um, uh, but for those who are who are who are listening to this on a relatively uh, prompt basis, um, uh, again, it's anytime between now and October 19th. You can send an email to donate at signumu.org to enter yourself uh, into the drawing. So, uh, very good. I saw somebody already did that. So, that's cool. I already saw an, e- uh, an email come in. So, excellent. All right. Once again, thanks everybody for your uh, generosity. And please do, I hope that, you know, if you've been enjoying Mythgard Academy sessions and if you've been enjoying the other things that we do and, and you know, support what Signum is doing moving forward and are exciting about excited about our vision for, for, for where we're going with, with Tolkien studies, with fantasy and science fiction literature, with Germanic philology, with, uh, in higher education, uh, as we, you know, sort of continue to grow here. Um, you know, I pray that you just, you know, you just make a, an extra, uh, donation, right. That you would just, uh, uh, help us to move forward there. All right. Um, 
<laughs> Stephen says, would it have to be for the next election or could we save it? Well, if you save it too long, I'm liable to forget. But you can, I mean, you know, it's up to you. You can you can pull the string on that anytime you want to. Uh, just when the when the election comes up that you would like to uh, uh, to 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 you know put your oar in, you can you can do that. Absolutely. Um, all right, very good. So, thank you, everybody, and we are going to get back to the text. So, um. This is from the fragment, uh, a fragment that Tolkien didn't finish, um, about what was going to happen next, right? So we had Alfwina and Treowin doing the, um, doing, um, the uh, King Sheev, right? Um, so, and we, we talked about the King Sheev stuff uh, and the, the kind of interesting mythic uh, role that it plays, right? Uh, kind of factoring into the whole Numenorean influence on Germanic culture thing that we've been looking at all through. Um, and then we see where this was headed after that, right? So they're going to get in a boat. So the, 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 the Saxons are going to attack. They're going to beat off the Saxons. And then they, Alfwina and Treowin, are, are gone, right? They're going to sail away. The wind is from the east, and they sail on and on and come to no land. They are exhausted, and such a dreamlike death seems to be coming over them. Oh, sorry, and a dreamlike death seems to be coming over them. They smell the fragrance. Sweet is, blost, is blostma, brath begonden. Brath begonden sai, says Alfwina, and struggles to rise. Um, I believe that sweet is the blossoms from beyond the sea. But the wind changes. Great clouds come out of the west. Behold the eagles of the lords of the west coming over Numenor, said Alfwina, and fell back as one dead. Treowind sees the round world curve below, and straight ahead a shining land, before the wind seizes them and drives them away. In the gathering dark or dusk, he sees a bright star shining in a rent in the cloud to the west. Eala Eärendil Engla Beorchtast. Then he remembers no more. Whether what follows is my direct dream, said Jeremy, or the dreams of Treowin and Alfwina in the deeps of the sea, I cannot say. I woke to find myself. And that's it. <laughs> and it ends there, rather tantalizingly. Um, so. You notice the huge momentous thing that seems to be happening here, right? So one of the things that we've been seeing, right, there have been a couple things that have been going on uh, in the, like, Numenorean story of the Notion Club paper. We've been focusing on the Numenor story, right, because it's very striking, obviously. The, the coming of the Eagles in the West and Loudham and Jeremy doing their... You know, like being doing their like traveling in time in front of everybody, right? As they're going back and they're revisiting the sinking of, uh, you know, they're they're on the ship, right? And they're being driven off and off they go into the storm and everything. Um, the focus has been on the drowning of Numenor. It has been on the the uh, the experience of the exiles and the the mythic memory of the exile from Numenor that we've been seeing, you know, as we've been seeing that being handed down into uh, 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 the whole Germanic cultures, right? Um, as we saw again, remember the kind of genealogy of that, which um, 
Alfwina traced in his little addendum to the King Sheev story, right? Connecting King Sheev to the the royal houses of like all of the Germanic peoples, right? Anyway, so we've been really focusing on the Numenor story and the Numenor myth, the, the Atlantis myth, right? But there is something else going on here, right? The other thing that's going on here is... So, they're trying to sail into the West. Why are they trying to sail into the West? Where are they going? Why are they going? How are they going? Right? Um, yeah, Estelle, that's exactly it. The Ariel saga is what is creeping in here along the way. Right? So... Those of you with very retentive memories will, of course, recall way back when we did Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1 and 2, which was, golly, 2014? 2014 to 2015, maybe? It's like four or five years ago we did that now. Gosh. But anyhow, so if you remember back to the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1 and 2, you will remember the character Ariel, the storyteller, the Anglo-Saxon storyteller, who ends up the... um, you know, that um, son of Arendil, right, who uh, uh, finds himself on Toleresia and meets the elves and gets told about stuff. And then you will remember that at the end, in indeed, in the thing which was appearing to derail the Book of Lost Tales, um, Tolkien changed his mind, right? He changed the character. He changed the, the, the person, the human, who came to Toleresia from Ariel into Alfwina. And when he did that, it was this was not just a name change. He also was changing the context of the story as well. Um, he had a different history. Alfwina had a different history and a different uh, kind of relationship with, uh, with Toleresia than Ariel did, but he never really developed it. He never really finished fleshing all that out. So, um, Alfwina, of course, uh, we haven't really talked about that element of it, um, because, of course, we've been sort of prepared to almost take for granted the use of the name Alfwina, because, of course, it's parallel to what we saw in The Lost Road, and it's been very clear from the beginning that the Notion Club Papers is Tolkien's kind of second attempt to come back and, 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 and write, I mean... There's one way, of course, in which the Notion Club papers is essentially him starting again with the Lost Road, right? He's kind of pitching the old Lost Road and taking it in a new direction. But how many times did he do that with other things, too? Um, So it's essentially the same kind of story that he's now rewriting in a different way. And as we recall, that was involved with those father-son pairings, right, Um, whose names basically meant, you know, friend friend of the Valar and friend of the elves, Um, uh, Elwin and 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 Alwin, right? Uh, were you know Alfwina uh, and uh, and and uh, Elwina. So, okay. So, since we had that again, the whole Alfwina thing has seemed well very natural, right? Um, in the context of the Lost Road, but of course. When, if we're only thinking of that, then it's easy to forget the fact that, obviously, Alfwina is also very relevant for 
the Ariel saga for the Book of Lost Tales frame thing itself, especially since you'll remember Alfwina. Uh, it was it was in the story of Alfwina. One of the things that he was really focusing on was the actual bringing of the legends back. Uh, to, he was tying it historically into Anglo-Saxon England, right? That's that's kind of where like Ariel, the character, uh, originally was kind of a a little bit of a fairy tale character, right? He didn't. He didn't have a very clear history. One got kind of developed, um, but he didn't really sort of start off rooted clearly in our history. And re- and remember, that's kind of ultimately the point of the Book of Lost Tales uh, was to to do a mythology for England, right? To give a true version of the native English mythology to show how the legends of the elves entered into the English tradition. So rooting that, so he, 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 when he changes it to Alfwina, one of the ways in which that changes is he's changing the way and, and sort of consolidating the way, uh, that, that, that those stories get transmitted into, get kind of, uh, integrated with, uh, the Anglo-Saxon history. Right. Um, so that was in Tolkien's, fiction, that was the character Alfwina's first job, uh, was to be a more concrete link than the character Ariel had been, a more concrete link uh, between the stories of the elves and the uh, uh, the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, so that was sort of one Alfwina strand. Then we got that second Alfwina strand in The Lost Road. Right, where it was all about the friends of the Valar and the friends of the elves, uh, and what was clearly seemed pretty clearly a reincarnational system, right? That these father son pairs were being kind of continually reborn, and that the time travel that was going to happen was essentially through some kind of like a reincarnated sort of collective memory, like memory of a previous life kind of thing. Um, that we were going to be getting generationally back from, you know, modern England, where it began, uh, back through different historical epochs, and finally, of course, uh, down to Numenor and the fall of Numenor itself. Um, so, okay, so that's the um, um, that's the other strand of the Alfwina story. And again, I don't know about you. Maybe you were much more sensitive to this than I was. As again, as, as we've been focusing all the way through, I've been completely swept away by the Atlantis story. I've been really, as a, you know, as I've shared a couple times, really kind of wrapping my mind around that and my imagination around that in some pretty new ways uh, for me. Uh, this time through the Notion Club papers, um, so I've been really focused on that. Uh, that on the Lost Road. Um, Connection, not the Book of Lost Tales connection, but it does seem that we're beginning that well, I say we're beginning as if he's only now beginning. Uh, rather, it's only now finally obtruding itself upon my awareness <laughs> that Tolkien is really crossing the streams here. Right. Um, and I think that we even begun begun to began to get hints of that. Uh, even in the Imram material, in the Saint Brendan material, right, with his his travels to uh, uh, to Elfland and coming back and telling the tale, that in itself, like that, what happened with Saint Brendan in that poem, 
uh, inspired by the medieval St. Brendan voyage material, uh, is kind of like a, a shadow of the Ariel saga, a shadow of the, of the Ariel and Alfwina situation from the Book of Lost Tales. So notice what we're getting here. We're getting this really interesting mixture. They're sailing into the West by themselves, small party, right? How, where does this fit into the Atlantis story? On the one hand, it seems pretty clear that Alfwina, the Anglo-Saxon dude, the one who is in whom uh, uh, Laudum is in some way in touch with, right, uh, is descended from the Numenorians, right? He clearly has that blood in his veins, as he described, right? Um, that's clearly that's clearly in effect. Um, so he has the sea longing, the sea longing, which he said is the most is the primary characteristic of people who have uh, that old Numenorean blood in their veins. So he's going out to sea to do he knows not what exactly to answer this longing. Um, what is the sea longing? Remember the seafarer passage that he corrected, right? He takes this passage from the famous Anglo-Saxon poem, The Seafarer, and he tweaks it, right? Or rather, excuse me, he gives us the true version, right? Instead of the garbled version uh, that most people generally read, uh, in which he takes that longing for the sea and he roots it firmly within that Numenorean tradition, blending that longing for the sea which the seafarer uh, is 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 interested in, and uh, combines it with that longing for Numenor, for uh, for the, the you know for Atalanta, uh, the downfallen one. Um, and on the one hand, they Alfwina and Treowin in their voyage here have one demonstrably. Atlantean experience, right? The eagles, right? The great clouds come out of the West. Behold, the eagles of the Lords of the West coming over Numenor, said Alfwina, and fell back as one dead. Right. So the character Alfwina has almost exactly the same experience that Laudum had. Did you notice that? Remember, Laudum is standing with Jeremy at the window as the storm is coming in, right? In 1986 or seven. Anyway, in the 80s. And anyway, so they're, stand, they're standing at the window uh, holding on to the, the, the railing, right? The, you know, the, the, the edge of the, the windowsill, um, giving the impression that they're holding the railing of a ship. Um, and they're seeing, and, they're, and they're, they say, you know, behold the eagles of the lords of the west coming over Numenor, right? They are experiencing this again. Alfwina, who is an Anglo-Saxon dude, right? Also historically removed from the fall of Numenor, not by quite so much, but still historically removed from it, like Laudum. But like Laudum, he seems to be having the same experience here again. So the character within the vision that they're having is having a vision, the same vision that Laudum had had, right, Uh, of the Eagles of the Lords of the West. And it seems that they are being rejected, right? They are being bounced they're sailing into the west and the, 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 the wind changes and clouds come out of the west. And the wind seizes them and drives them away, we're told. So they're being rejected from the west, like the Numenorians, right? So we get this, this um, recollection of the exile, again, the banishment, that sense of, of not 
being delivered or escaping from Numenor, but being banished from Numenor. Right? And in particular, of course, we have the making of the world round, which is a consequence of the drowning of, or rather, which is sort of a consequence of the rebellion of Numenor, right? Um, it wasn't just that the landmass sank beneath the ocean, but the blessed realm is taken entirely out of the rounded world so that only that one straight road continues. But I have to admit, I'm not really sure how to understand this whole passage. That is, both halves of it make some sense to me, but I'm not quite sure how they're supposed to fit together. The one half being that apparently they come to the, like, they they come to the straight road, right? They find it, and then they're rejected. They're turned back. Okay, so they're, that they're turned back seems to me to make sense, especially with the way that, again, we get uh, in Alfwina's first-hand experience. We, well, second-hand experience, but, well, no. According to Raymer's mechanism, it's, it's you know, he, he is experiencing it. Um, but anyway, he gets this experience of the, of, the, of the banishment again, right? But at the same time, then there's what Treowin sees. Treowin sees the round world curve below and straight ahead a shining land before the wind seizes them and drives them away. In the gathering dark or dusk, he sees a bright star shining in a rent in the clouds, in the cloud in the west. A description very much like what St. Prendon saw. Remember in the poem? The star, the last, that one little stanza describing the star about which he would say very little, but this is what he saw. Uh, the star at the place where the, the, the round world curves away below and the straight road continues. So they see it and he sees the bright star and then he quotes... The li- he says the line, Eala erendel engla beortast. That line which, you know, inspired Tolkien to start writing his stuff, right? Uh, and he gives us here, Tolkien gives us here, the true source of it, right? That is what that line really means. Because again, there's some uncertainty about what that line mirror could mean many different things, right? Um, and here he gives a mythical meaning for that line. Eala erendel englebeartast. As he sees the star over the straight road that they, I think, can't go on. Right? So they're not going on the straight road. They're being turned away from the straight road. But they see the straight road. But they start on the straight road. Um... Enough so that he can see the stars, so that they can see the world uh, uh, falling away beneath. So it's like they're almost ending up like the Alfwina of the Book of Lost Tales, right? Getting to Toleresia and being able to talk to the elves and bring home the legends, but they don't actually get that far. Instead, all of a sudden we switch like we're we're a big percentage, I don't know what percentage of the way into the Alfwin, into the Ariel saga story, right? The Book of Lost Tales story. And then all of a sudden we switch to Numenor and it's the eagles and it's the wind and we're rejecting them now. Um, so seeing the way, in order to understand well, no, let me rephrase that sentence. I'm not even going to say that sentence. Before we attempt to understand what's going on 
uh, in the story? What's going on in Tolkien's mind in this story that he is trying and ultimately failing to tell here in the Notion Club papers? Um, we need to begin to see how these two stories, the Book of Lost Tales stuff and the Lost Road stuff, uh, are really kind of coming together. And this passage seems to me a really interesting glimpse into the way in which they really don't jive, right? It's hard. He seems to sort of want to do both, but it's kind of difficult to do. Uh, A couple odd passages here. Um, This is a note that he makes, that Tolkien makes on the back of the manuscript page. The theory is that the sight and memory goes on with descendants of Elendil and Veronwe equals Treowina, but not reincarnation. They are different people, even if they still resemble one another in some ways, even after a lapse of many generations. So he is confirming that the mechanism of time travel is new, right? He's still sort of thinking in the Raymer directions from part one of the Notion Club papers uh, and the kind of ta- of very complicated mechanism of time travel uh, that he was explaining and developing there. Um, not the reincarnation thing, which it did seem he was definitely thinking about reincarnation. I mean, he himself mentions it here, I think, for that reason, that he is making clear, he is making a clear decision in writing it down, Right. This, these are not going to be reincarnated folks. They are going to be descendants, right? So, you know, uh, Laudum is in fact going to be a descendant of Elendil, essentially. Um, but that's not... But, but he's not the reincarnation of Elendil. He might even resemble him in some ways, uh, right? Because the blood of, uh, the blood of Numenor uh, is runs true in his family, right? Just like with uh, Faramir and Denethor. Um, so, okay. But it's, it's, but it's more like the Raymer method. By the way, side note, thinking of the Raymer method. Have any of the rest of you been having really vivid dreams since we've been talking about this book? Or is it just me? Maybe it's just me. But I've been noticing I'm having really, really vivid dreams for the last couple months, uh, much more than I than I remember having before. Uh, maybe it's because at least one night a week I'm like thinking about really intense dreams before I go to sleep. I don't know, uh, but I'm um, I, I'm just saying it's definitely it's definitely been happening. I can't report any actual time travel. Uh, I, I don't think. Um, I don't think I can I can really firsthand confirm too many of Raymer's uh, 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 you know mechanisms that he was describing. Um, uh, yeah, no, nor space travel, Devora. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, and again, this is uh, I can't really tell whether this actually happened or if this was just a dream, just what Chaucer would call an insomnium. Uh, that is, uh, an insomnium is, you know, when like a carpenter dreams about woodworking, um, you know, like just whatever your mind was occupied with all day, you dream about that at night. So me dreaming about vivid dreams would be kind of like an insomnium, right? You know, somebody who teaches classes about, uh, about the notion club papers goes to sleep and dreams about dreams like they describe in the notion club papers might be kind of actually a similar sort of thing. Um, 
I have not indeed been dreaming of darkness, darkness everlasting, Arthur, but, um, yeah, no, no, uh, that's not so, uh, uh, nothing, uh, nothing Faramir-ish. Uh, the one experience I had which reminded me of it, though again, I may just have been dreaming about the class session that we just had recently done, was thinking about Raymer's discussions of, com- of, of, like, creative dreams. Like, when your dreaming mind is actually composing fiction. Um, uh, that, that actually is a sense that I've had a couple times in the last few months as we've been discussing the Notion Club papers when I've woken up with a sense of having unfolded a story in a dream in which I was like an active, creative participant. Like I was, it was partially a story that I was forming, not just one in which I was just a victim, but but something that I was actually forming. But then again, like I said, it might just have been a dream about the Notion Club papers that I was having, really. Um, but... Um, Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Stephen asks when uh, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, in uh, what was it, Second Corinthians chapter twelve, uh, talks of a man who uh, visited, who who ascended up to the third heaven, either in the body or out. Uh, could he have been talking about this sort of dream? Well, of course, I'm tempted to say your guess is as good as mine. What Paul was talking about there, especially since he references the third heaven and i'm not even sure what system he's using when he's talking like i'm not i've, I've never been 100 percent sure on exactly what paul meant by that uh exactly but um yeah second corinthians 12 that's what i thought um but anyhow um yeah never been 100 percent sure what to do with that passage Stephen. i have to admit anyway let's carry on Here's a set of notes. You guys lo- you know how I love Tolkien's plot notes, right? Um, here are his plot notes for what's going to happen. Treoween sees the straight road and the world plunging down. So this is from that, you know, connecting back to that last passage. Alfwina's vessel seems to be taking the straight road and falls in a swoon of fear and exhaustion. So not the vessel, presumably it's Alfwina himself who falls in a swoon of fear and exhaustion. Alfwina gets view of the book of stories and writes down what he can remember. Later fleeting visions. Beleriand tale. Sojourn in Numenor before and during the fall ends with Elendil and Veronwe fleeing on a hill of water into the dark with eagles and lightning pursuing them. Elendil has a book which he had written. His descendants get glimpses of it. Alfwina has one. Okay. Um, so you see how he's doing this? This is one of the last things that he wrote on the Notion Club papers, right? This comes at the end. This is him projecting forward the story that he's never going to write, uh, actually, in fact, right? So he, he is going to use... Yeah, Arthur, I was thinking the same thing. It sounds like uh, Bilbo's Riddle. Alfwina has one. Um, uh, yes, yeah, I was, I was thinking of that too. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, you, so you see how he's going to bring them together? He has a cunning plan. He has a cunning plan of how to combine the two things. It's almost like in, this, uh, in the previous 
passage we were looking at, the the last full piece of prose that he wrote, right, about Afwina. Um, he's almost in the Book of Lost Tales route, and then he gets the Numenorean rejection, right? So it's it's like the combination of these two stories, the combination of these two narrative impulses to do the Book of Lost Tales thing and to do the Numenor thing, you know, the Akalabeth thing, uh, that those two things are coming into conflict here. And like, how can you do them both? In the end, you just get poor Alfwina fainting dead away in his boat and and not getting anywhere, right? Um, here, in his projections, he starts with that same thing, Trayawina seeing the straight road, and then he finds the solution, right? And the solution is that Trayawina and Alfwina have... They don't go to Tolaresia themselves. They don't interview the elves. They don't hear the stories straight from the elves. Alfwina gets a view of the book of stories and writes down what he can remember, just as Laudum's dad got a picture, and Laudum himself get a picture of that, um, uh, uh, you know, combo... Uh, you know, remember language A, language B texts, right? Um, he and and so he both Loudum's dad, uh, who disappeared, uh, and uh, Loudum himself get these pictures, which they can only remember fragments of afterwards, right? He gets a so there's a book of stories. Presumably the stories like the stories that would have been written from the Book of Lost Tales, right? And he is given a vision of that book itself, not of conversations with the elves, not dreams of hanging out in the Cottage of Lost Play or anything like that, right? No, he, he gets a view of the book itself. There is a book written, and he writes down what he can remember. So we're going to get a Beleriand tale, like a Book of Lost Tales style Beleriand tale. I wonder which one it was. That, to me, is the most tantalizing thing in this whole thing. Like, all of them? It's singular, right? So is there a particular story, Silmarillion story, that he was going to weave in here? And if so, which one was it? I wonder. I don't really know. Um, But then, of course, now watch how he continues to sort of enrich this story. Sojourn in Numenor before and during the fall, ends with Elendil and Veronwe fleeing on a hill of water. So as the, the, the time travel, we are going to go back to Numenor, right? So just as we're getting, just as, as Laudum and Jeremy are getting this vision of uh, the Anglo-Saxon frame, right? Alfwina and Treowina, then they're going to move back further still, right? And they're going to get a vision of Elendil and Veronwe in Numenor, as they kind of already did, got that flash of it during the storm, right? Um, so they're going to get their thing, and they're going to fleeing on a hill of water into the dark with the eagles and the lightning pursuing them. Elendil has a book which he had written. His descendants get glimpses of it. Alfwina has one. Glimpse of the book, right? Um... Thomas, I don't know exactly how these memories pass through the generations. Um, I mean, that is certainly, I don't know from a genetic standpoint and all that kind of thing, exactly how it happens. Um, 
in a sense, Tomas, you could say that the reincarnation mechanism was much simpler, right? I mean, if if they are, in a sense, the same people, then they could be understood, in a sense, to have those memories, right? Somewhere deep within their psyche lingers the memories of these earlier lives in which they experienced these things. And getting in touch with those was seemed to be the plan for the mechanism of time travel in The Lost Road. Here, it's... I was going to say less clear, but that's not true. It's just more complicated, right? These things are coming through to Loudham and Jeremy. The myths are exploding, remember, into the primary world here. Um... It's more than just them reaching back into their own past life memories. And they're not reaching back into their ancestral memories merely either. Um, it's more conscious than that, as Raymer tried to describe, right? Um, yeah, Marilyn is uh, nominating a very sensible nomination of Baron and Luthien as the Balerian tale that is told. Uh, Marilyn, I have to say, smart money would be on the Baron and Luthien story uh, in uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, you know, in absence of any other data, that's a pretty good guess, uh, given how insistently that story always broke into other stories that Tolkien was writing. Um, of course, I'm tempted to think, or maybe this is just a, since we're already taking one step of like fantasy wish fulfillment of like fantasizing that Tolkien had finished the notion club papers and what would the Blarian tale be? So as long as I'm already taking that leap of fantasy, I, I prefer to choose an additional leap of to throw in an additional, you know, might as well get hanged for a sheep as a lamb. Right? So if I'm imagining that he went on to complete this plan and finish the notion club papers, then I'm also going to imagine that the Balerian tale that he included is the story of Arendel actually. Uh, and the whole build up to the journey and the full journey and the story that he never actually told ever in his life. Um, but you know, can't have everything. Yeah, Zach, you were thinking the same thing. You just said it much more briefly than I did. But yes, absolutely, the the, the Arendel story would certainly fit. Um, so we're going to transmit the Book of Lost Tales material, not through an actual book that is brought, although Elendil has a book tucked under his arm on the boat. So apparently... The Book of Stories made it, like, to Ireland, presumably. Unless he lost it, you know, upon the landing, right? When the enormous wave brings them and lands them, goodness knows how far inland, uh, in uh, the, you know, in the middle of the Irish uh, countryside. Um, but, um, but anyway, uh, so maybe there's going to be, are we going to uncover the book? Is there any actual, rec- you know, uh, uh, record of the book or copies of the book or, or, you know, so are we going to be doing any textual uh, uh, adventures, right? Trying to find the book of stories or is it just the piecing together? Are they going to, are, are more and more of, is more and more of that going to be coming through as it came, as the languages came through to Loudon and then fragments of text, right? Um, 
that idea, which is our, he's already been developing in the Notion Club papers of those recollections, those visions, which aren't visions of people or of things or of events, but visions of pages of text, right? Remembering seeing a page of text and then quick trying to write down as much of it as you can to, 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 to uh, um, relate as much of it as you can. So that is a really interesting, though pretty complicated, um, concept, right, for uh, how to combine the Akalabeth material and the, uh, the Book of Lost Tales material. This, of course, is a very famous sentence, possibly the most single famous sentence in the entire Notion Club papers thing. It's not part of the text itself, but it's a note in the text, right, uh, at a particular transition point. And it comes right after the scene in which... So, again, we see the Notion Club papers is a story that took a sudden and unexpected right-hand turn, right? Um, and... Uh, Christopher dates the, or, you know, he, he pinpoints the turn at when Loudham has his first vision. When he, remember when he sees the wisp of cloud up above uh, the camera, right? And has his first like Numenorean flashback experience. Um, that's the moment that Christopher says, okay, this is when all of a sudden, now we're talking about Numenor. We're talking about Atlantis all of a sudden, right? Um, yes, that's clearly an important moment. Um, my argument was that the turn came earlier, right? The turn comes when what sounds for 80% of the part one material, the long discussion primarily with Raymer and Guildford, um, about Raymer's method and and time travel and space travel and how spaceships are horrible and alternatives for, for time and space travel in stories and then in real life, remember? All that stuff from Raymer uh, in part one. And then all of a sudden, remember, Dolbear opens up his eye and says, but, tell, you know, come clean, Raymer. How did you get there? When did you go? Um, you didn't make this up. This is real. And that, in my opinion, that's when it takes a when it really takes a turn. Now, I think it's true. He doesn't see where it's gone. Right. He only he first sees the the turn has already happened. Right. This is this is becoming itself, not just a sort of a fun and entertaining discussion of the time travel and space travel mechanisms, um, a thing to read the Inklings, which is also a mockery of the Inklings, right? A fun, you know, teasing of the Inklings. Um, when it ceases to be that and becomes itself a time travel and space travel story. Um, that, to me, is when the turn the turn happens. It just takes him a little while to see, where are we going, right? What direction are we seeing? Remember, Raymer's, the first things that Raymer's talk, he's talking about these other worlds, right? These other planets that he's been to um, through his dreaming mechanism. Um, and then Loudham has his thing and boom, now we're doing Atlantis, right? So that's the impression that it, that it gives. So again, that's why for me, I, I wouldn't call that the pivot. I would call that sort of the moment of clarity, right? 
uh, when he when he sort of figures it out. But anyway, at this, you know, when all of a sudden the Notion Club papers changes, Tolkien jots down this very famous note. Do the Atlantis story and abandon Ariel saga with Loudham, Jeremy, Guildford and Raymer taking part. This is going to be the new plan for the Notion Club papers. The clear implication of this is that initially he was going to do the Ariel saga and then decides, nah, Numenor. It's got to be Numenor instead. And again, that does seem to be, I mean, that I can easily believe happens when Loudham has his little vision and suddenly starts speaking in Adunayak in the middle of an Oxford street. Okay, we're doing the Atlantis story now. Um, and abandoning the Ariel saga, right? So, okay. So, that raises two questions for me. Question number one. He was going to do the Ariel saga that was plan A? Really? That's what we were leading up to from Raymer's whole thing? So part one was trucking its way towards the Ariel saga? That's question number one. Question number two, so we're abandoning the Ariel saga? Really? Did we actually did we actually follow through on that? Um so the first one the answer to the first question seems to be yes. And for me personally, I kind of feel like I'm taking that on faith, honestly. Um, I don't see... Like, if we only had part one, right? Remember part one, again, Raymer's whole thing, and then the conversation with um, uh, Guildford on the way home uh, when he's... Uh, you know, talking, you know, and, and, and Guildford sort of apologizing to him and they're saying, you know, they need to talk about this more, um, all that stuff. If, if we only had that before Loudham does his thing, right before, before Ari Loudham becomes, um, you know, the Numenorean dude. And we're starting to talk about his languages and that whole thing before any of that happens. If you just sort of paused and say, we're on a book of lost tales trajectory here, right? I'd be like, what? I don't see it. Um, I, I don't think it's impossible. Um, but so my understanding of Ariel saga by Ariel saga, my understanding of that is that's what I'm characterizing as doing the book of lost tales thing, right? That is a story which tells us how these stories of the ancient world, the ancient Elvish world, came into circulation among humans. That's the core of the Book of Lost Tales myth, right? As opposed to the Atlantis story, right? So that, I think, is what he's characterizing here as the Ariel saga. Human somehow gets access to the stories of the Elder Days and what happened among the Elves and Valar and transmits that to other humans, right? That's uh, again, my understanding of the core of the Ariel saga. Um, again, I never would have guessed that. Just from part one, I would never have guessed that. I, I, I didn't see that coming. I don't see clear hints towards that. I don't find it impossible to believe. However, I don't find it a strain to believe that because, of course, 
the entire, you know, when I ask myself, where does Raymer's long discussion of his mechanism bring us? Well, where it brings us is the idea of being in touch with, and even in a sense, translating directly, right? Being in direct mind-to-mind touch with alien things, right? With different times and different places. So once he's told me that he was thinking of the Ariel saga, I can see how it would work. Right? I could see how if, if they're going to go on and say, hey, yeah, let's uh, somehow apply the uh, Raymer method um, or have Raymer apply it or whatever, you know, hear more about Raymer's adventures and, uh, and whatnot. Um, remember, he already had interactions with like elvish sort of peoples, right? So that Raymer himself could have been, in a sense, Ariel, right? That he, through his dreaming mechanism, had this interaction with uh, the elves of Toleresia and heard from them, through his dreaming mechanism, their stories and transmitted it. With all of the limitations, remember all that stuff about how, like, when you turn it into English, it's lessened, right? It just becomes embodied in what it is and you lose the direct experience, right? But remember... Once you start thinking in this direction, it all seems to fit pretty well. Because, of course, uh, going to the Cottage of Lost Play in Dreams is one of the very first conceptions of the entire um, legendarium, right? So, dreams as mechanism for traveling to Elfland? Yeah, old idea. One of the oldest ideas in Tolkien's entire mythos. And, of course, it's significant that he calls it the Ariel Saga because Ariel does mean... Uh, with the translation of Ariel they gave was he who dreams alone, right? So Ariel's name is associated with dreams as well. And, Kit, you're absolutely correct. Yes, he had uh, decided to replace Ariel with Alfwina long before this, but keep in mind two things, right? First of all, that's about the direction of the story. The, 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 when he was working on that old story, the Book of Lost Tales, right? He had decided he wanted to move the frame in a different direction again because, and this is my interpretation, because he wanted to root that differently in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, in our historical, in English historical tradition, let me say, right? Uh, and so he was shifting away from the aerial concept, the he who dreams alone, to Alfwina of England, uh, related to Hengist and Horsa, and, and, and he wanted to tie that in more clearly, right? But he's not writing that story. That story is gone, Kit, right? He's not writing that story anymore. He's writing a new story. And in the context of this new story, he seems to be going back to the aerial idea at first, potentially. Again, if I'm understanding him properly... That's, you know, based on what he wrote and based on what he said here about it, that seems to be the concept, right? Raymer as Ariel um, theory, right? uh, Raymer as Ariel. And when you start thinking about that, it fits really nicely. It fits really well. And indeed, everything Raymer said about the kind of experiences he had, about stories and storytelling and myth and everything else, that that's something that really could be transmitted this way. And so Raymer could have been the mechanism. He could have been the Ariel. He could have been the mechanism for bringing those stories uh, forward 
into our world, would they have gone through the Anglo-Saxon, you know, come by way of the Anglo-Saxon period or anything? Don't know. All the Anglo-Saxon stuff seems to date from after the Numenorean stuff came in, so I can't really tell for sure, um, though it certainly does seem possible. Again, that's uh, he was certainly thinking that way in The Lost Road, so it was there. But anyway, he's, so, so the answer to the first question, so the Notion Club Papers was the Ariel story to start with, apparently is yes, and when you look at it, Although I wouldn't have guessed, that that certainly makes some sense. The answer to the second question. So, did he abandon the Ariel saga and do the Atlantis story instead? Uh, no. No, I don't believe that at all. Because, Kit, the other thing I was going to say in response to your question, I said, I said, I told you to remember two things, right? One, that the alteration, the dropping of Ariel and the development of Alfwina was not like a permanent thing in his whole mental landscape. It was his way he was taking that story, right? But the second thing to remember is the general fact that Tolkien never throws anything away, right? Um, Yes, he cut Ariel from the story of the Book of Lost Tales and replaced him with Alfwina. But where did he go? Where did Ariel go? Well, he went into that drawer that I've been joking about throughout the history of the Lord of the Rings, right? That, that, That drawer of clippings um, you know, so Ariel went to, so when, um, when, when, when Odo was finally permanently removed from the story, right. Odo goes into the drawer to live with Ariel and, and, uh, you know, the, the children of the Valar and all these other things. Um, I don't think Tolkien ever totally dropped an idea. There are some things that he fairly firmly changes his mind about, but there are a lot of things, that, there are at least as many things that he seems to change his mind about, but I'm not convinced he totally did change his mind about. Um, anyway, Ariel, as a character, does not die. He just gets removed from that story and put into the drawer, and now he's taken him out the drawer, right? Um, and he's taken Alfwina out of the drawer again who, for the second time. Alfwina got taken out of the drawer in order to be made the protagonist of The Lost Road, right? To be repurposed from his role as story transmitter from the past to the time travel mechanism, right? And the 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 one through whom the Numenor story was first going to come. But I'm not at all convinced that he had lost, he dropped the, the book. I think that The Lost Road was probably also going to, in the end, try to do both. Uh, both the Atlantis story and the Ariel saga. And it seems really clear from those last passages that we started today's class with um it seems uh it seems pretty clear that he's he's still doing both yes he's doing the atlantis story but no he's not abandoned the ariel saga i really don't believe that at all uh we can see that i think still pretty clearly um uh 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 still pretty clearly living and peeking through uh, there at the end, in in the last thing that he wrote, right, his projections uh, about where the story was going to head, and there's there's no sign of abandoning the Ariel saga. Certainly, there I think least of all, right? I mean, we got the book of stories for crying out loud. Um, yeah. Okay, so just uh, a few more things. These are some of the. Um, uh, this is drawn from the the variants 
that Christopher gave you. Remember, he says at the very beginning that the textual history is very complicated and there are multiple versions of things. And so he gives a couple different um, uh, uh, sort of different versions. Here's just this one passage, which I wanted to read together for the same reason that I wanted to read many of the earlier sort of scattered passages that we were looking at, not because it, it, it particularly bears in my mind upon like, you know, necessarily helping us to understand the notion club papers as a narrative much better. Um, but because it's one of those places where I think we're getting a pretty direct glimpse into Tolkien's own theories and ideas. Um, and we can hear him here articulating this more explicitly than we usually do. So I thought, worth looking at that. Um, in any case, said Loudham, Arendel is not Anglo-Saxon. Or rather, it is and it isn't. I think it is one of those curious cases of linguistic coincidence that have long puzzled me. I sometimes think that they are too easily dismissed as mere accident. You know the sort of thing that you can find in any dictionary of a strange language, which so excites the amateur philologists, itching to derive one tongue from another that they know better a word that is nearly in the same in form and meaning as the corresponding word in English or Latin or Hebrew or whatnot. Like mare, male, in the New Hebrides and Latin maris, marem. Or the example that used to be given as a frightful warning in the old textbooks, that popol means people or popular assembly in Tamil, but has no connection whatever with populus and its derivatives, and is really derived, they say, from a Tamil word for a mat for the councillors to squat on. Uh, so he's, he's citing this. He said this was a classic textbook example, like in introductory philology textbooks, they would give this as a, as a, as a cautionary tale. Right. Not to see connections where they don't necessarily exist, just because two words in two different languages have a very similar form and a very similar meaning. That is not proof that those two languages are overlapping there, that they're deriving from each other there. Um, sometimes it's just a coincidence. It's a linguistic coincidence. So, again, this is something that stern philologists will say, right, don't get, you know, and because amateur philologists, right, people who don't really know much about how this works get all excited. And I will add, by the way, uh, I am no philologist at all, but even I have seen this kind of thing in action a lot. In particular, this happens uh, in the context of my past 10 years Tolkien professoring um, and taking innumerable random lore questions. Um, I will occasionally, fairly regularly, but, you know, sporadically, but regularly get a question from somebody who wants to prove that Tolkien was deeply influenced by, by this language. As, as, uh, uh, Loudham says in that paragraph, a language that they happen to know, right? So there's, there, there's another language that they happen to know. Like I remember there was this, uh, there was this one email I got from this guy once who was like, does Tolkien know Arabic? You know, did he know Arabic? And I'm like, I don't know any evidence that he knew Arabic. I don't know that he didn't necessarily. Uh, he may well have done. He studied many, many languages, but I can't remember any concrete evidence that he knew, definitely knew Arabic. Uh, why? And the guy is like, oh, because there's this, you know, and he goes on to cite a couple words which are very similar in form and definition to, to Elvish words. And so, you know, in the minds of this guy, that was like a smoking gun, 
right? That clearly, not only did he know Arabic, but that Arabic was like a deep root influence to the Elvish languages. And I'm like, uh, no, no, I don't, um, I don't, I think that's a coincidence. And the guy, I, I could, there was no convincing this guy uh, that that was a coincidence. He absolutely would not accept that. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Loudham is talking about here. Philologists know these kind of coincidences happen a lot, right? But Tolkien also, well, Loudham also, and I, I think here he's speaking for Tolkien, speculates that there's also more going on. I dare say that some of these things are mere chance, or at least not very significant. Yet I think it also happens that a word form may be arrived at by different routes in far separated times and places, and yet the result may be the product of a hidden symbol-making process working out to a similar end. Or in any case, the accident may touch off, as it were, deeper or sleeping mind echoes, so that the similar form thus acquires similar significance or emotional content. Every language has words in which its genius seems to come to flashpoint, words whose form, though it remains within the general style, achieves a brilliance or a beauty of universal virtue. Okay, um, so... Sometimes it's just a coincidence. Sometimes it's not a coincidence. But it doesn't mean that there's a philological link either. There's a third possibility, right? There's actual, like, common etymologies, right? There's, there's some kind of root that they share in common. That's one possibility. Another possibility is chance. It's just a coincidence. But there's a third possibility, and that third possibility is essentially um, what, Margaret, exactly. There are only so many sounds, right? There are only so, so many phonemes that we make, right? So, like, sometimes there are going to be coincidences. It's not really that, uh, that outrageous. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, but there is a, this third possibility. And the third possibility is that different people in different languages and different cultures may non-coincidentally come to a very similar sound pattern. They may attach a very similar sound pattern to the same thing. Not because those languages are, etymo you know, those words in those two different languages are etymologically linked, but because those sounds are more, are fitting for that thing. And both peoples in the two different languages both see it or hear it, rather. Right? Remember when he was talking about language invention and he was talking about not just, you know, remember the difference Ladam was saying between just code making and real language invention? The difference between merely saying, you know, jibber jabber, saying the word for sky is jibber jabber, and finding the right word for sky, the word, the combination of sounds, which is not only beautiful, you know, you're not just making purely aesthetic choices when you're forming your language. You are trying to, there is like a right and wrong answer, right? There is, there is a right set of sounds, which in some way like resonates with the sky better than others. 
you, it's not just arbitrary. It certainly can't be just arbitrary. And there are some that are better than others. So, um, so you, um, so he's theorizing therefore that some, um, of these apparent coincidences could not be coincidence. Therefore, N- you know, they're neither one of those two things. It's not an, etymo- an, an etymological link, and it's not coincidence. There is like a something like this is not the language of the Notion Club papers, so I should be careful saying this, but it's almost it's it strikes me as an almost platonic thing, right? Like there is a platonic idea that lies behind, and some words get closer to naming that essential thing. Um, and some are not. Um, but sometimes people in different places and in different languages both see that thing and name it appropriately. So maybe maybe there is something in that morpheme, that popol uh, morpheme, which connects with people. Um, maybe there's, there is a reason why Tamil and... Latin, both have very similar sounding words for that same thing. Maybe it's not because it's just coincidence. And it's certainly not because they're directly influencing each other. Maybe it's because there's something about, maybe that's that's close to the right word for that thing, right? Um, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Tomas and Rachel are both talking about onomatopoeia. No. I mean, yes, that, that of course can happen. Um, if it's connected with onomatopoeia, sure. But that's not what he's talking about there. This is, that's not this idea. The idea is not that Sometimes, like, a word is designed to imitate a sound which sounds alike to everybody, and so those words are going to be similar. Yeah, sure. But that's not what he's talking about. Again, remember, and I'm sorry, I should probably have uh, thrown up the slide that I uh, used before when I was looking at the earlier passage where he talked about this in relationship to language creation. But it's, it's, it is to Tolkien more mystical than that. That there is, there are sound combinations Tolkien does seem to believe that there is like things have names, right? There, there, some sound combinations will get closer to describing the essence, to fitting the essence of a thing better than other sound combinations. There are right and wrong answers when you're inventing a language. Um, and some languages do uh, get some things better than others. That's why he's talking about the particular genius of a language. He's not talking about geniuses who speak in the language. He's talking about the genius of the language. And every language has words in which its genius, the genius of the language, seems to come to flashpoint. So some languages just get it right with some words. Um, they have their, their, the, the names that they have applied to these things are just, they're, they're, they're almost right on. And some other names, they're really bad, right? But 
in some like in you know some languages get some words right um there's this much more kind of um mystical connection now zachary it was exactly in the context of the idea of like the remember he also talked about the idea of this sort of heavenly language this proto language um back when he was talking about old solar right that was lewis's idea uh, or rather, that was the idea that was articulated by Lewis in that series, right, in, in the Space Trilogy, that there is this primeval language, um, which was old solar, uh, as Lewis called it. And, uh, and, so, and, and all other languages are derived from that. And you'll remember that Laudum strongly disbelieves in old solar. It doesn't work that way. Language doesn't work that way. Um, but yet, Zach, I mean... You're absolutely right to to see that there's a kind of connection there. I think that the um, when Tolkien says there's no such thing as old solar, it's not because he does not believe that there are like, in a sense, essential names for things, correct names for things. He believes that that exists. He just does not believe that our languages all derive from that language. That, I think, is the part that he doesn't believe, because that's what Lewis says, right? You have the old solar language, and then the old solar language, as it's adopted within the different worlds, like within Malacandra, it's adapted and it's it's retained in its almost pure form by the Hrosa, um, but it becomes very different language among the Sor- among the Saroni and the Fifiltriki, right? Um, so again, the idea, but, but the idea is that old solar, this, like, you know, Edenic language, uh, so to speak, is like the root language of everything. That's the part that I believe that Tolkien through Loudon was rejecting and saying like, no way, philologically that doesn't work out. Um, it isn't that all of our language has fallen from a perfect language that totally identified all things. But it does remain true that in theory there could be such a language it's just he does not seem to believe that human language derived from it. You see the distinction there? Um, yes, exactly. There may be a true language, but it's not a root language. It is not. Our languages are not derived from it. Um, there may be a true language, but it's not Proto-Indo-European. <laughs> that's not. That's not it, and, and that's not how it worked. Um, um, yeah. Anyway, no, so yeah, no, no, no. You're right that Lewis doesn't say that our languages are derived from Old Solar due to the interference of the Bent One. But still, he... Though I think actually... I don't think that... I think they do still, indirectly. They're warped. Um, but again, any language comes from there. Um, anyway, yeah, no, I mean, it's... it's Lewis doesn't work that out explicitly. Um, but he does say that old solar is like the root language, uh, of all the other languages. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, Stephen, of course, the story of the tower of Babel, um, you know, when the languages are confused in Genesis chapter 11 is, um, The Tower of Babel is to philology as Noah's Ark is to um, Darwin, 
That is to say, before Germanic philology, before the Germans invented philology, let me say, that what everyone, ex- I mean, everyone just accepted the Tower, like the Tower of Babel was the explanation. Why do people speak multiple languages? Tower of Babel, right? Uh, the confusion of the languages. Um, the scientific study of language, of the history of language, um, you know, pioneered, of course, first by Jakob Grimm, um, or based on the theories of Jakob Grimm, uh, were the first ones to be able to, to say, like, hang on a second, like, whether or not the Tower of Babel happened, there's 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 patterns here, right? Um, this is not just a random confusion of languages. There are relationships among the among the 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 languages. Um, so the Tower of Babel is kind of complicated, and you can hear. Uh, I mean, even Tolkien is very. Uh, th- there are times when he refers to the Tower of Babel, and you can hear him referring to it as a philologist. Um, there's a frustration about the application of the Tower of Babel story um, because that like which strikes you know directly at the root i mean like that's what the philology haters said right people who were resistant to the idea of philology were like what are you talking about tower of babel why do we need any other explanation um uh so he's uh very much not uh in that camp and for that reason i think in part notice it never happens for all of the linguistic myths within Tolkien's world. There's never a Babel situation. Is there? I can't think of one. Not really a moment like that. There are lots of instances where peoples are scattered and so therefore their languages change and uh, move away from each other and stuff in lots of different ways. But that's... um, But there's never anything that looks like the Tower of Babel. There are things that look like other, like, core Genesis stories, right? You can find the fall of man. Lots of analogs to the fall. There's lots of analogs to Cain and Abel, right? Uh, There's analogs to Abraham and Isaac. But there's no Tower of Babel uh, analog uh, in Tolkien. That was a pretty definitive sentence. I can't think of any. Anyway, would be interested uh, if I'm overlooking any, which I could be, but I don't think there are. Anyway, uh, okay, more. Let's keep going. This, you talk about um, autobiography, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> Stephen, you're right. The fall of Numenor is kind of similar to the Tower of Babel, minus the language bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, you could say that it is kind of the um, the construction of the tower, right? You know, uh, like Arpharazon and Nimrod, right? Yeah, no, you can totally think of it. It's just the thing which was always like the central function, like the central feature of the Tower of Babel story is, is the bit that Tolkien... Uh, uh, doesn't do, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there's you can totally make that parallel, the Arpharazon and Nimrod parallel. Um, 
Yeah, it works in a bunch of ways. Again, but what doesn't work is the is the confusion of languages thereafter. Um, and again, we know that Lewis liked it, right? Lewis does the Babel thing very directly in that hideous strength. Uh, but uh, that's not a thing that you ever see Tolkien doing. Anyway, okay. Next bit. Talk about autobiography, right? This is uh, this is this is moving. I find this very moving. That breaks my dream, cried Jeremy. Of course, now I know. So remember the play? He trying to remember where he came across the name Numenor. Now I know. It wasn't a library. It was a folder containing a manuscript on a high shelf in Whitburn's second-hand room, that funny dark place where all sorts of unsaleable things drift. No wonder my dreams were full of dust and anxiety. It must have been fifteen years ago since I found the thing there. Quenta Eldalian, Being the History of the Elves by John Arthurson, in a manuscript which, much as I've described it, that is, like loose pa- old loose pages in a box, I took an eager but hasty glance. I had no time to spare that day, and I could find no one in the shop to answer any inquiries, so I hurried off. I meant to come back, but I didn't, not for almost a fortnight, and then the manuscript had vanished. They had no record of it, and neither old Whitburn nor anyone else there remembered ever seeing any such thing. I recall now what a catastrophe it seemed to me at the time, but I was very busy with other work and soon forgot all about it. Um... <laughs> Carita says dust and anxiety will be her next Twitter profile. Yeah, yeah. Um John Arthurson, of course, is Tolkien himself. He can't use his real name because he's already referred to himself, right? It's 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 a difficult thing when you're you're already indirectly referring to your own works within this work uh earlier on, so you've painted yourself into a corner. Um Remember, he was referring to on fairy stories when he was talking about fairy and drama. You know, not Lewis, but that like minor member of Lewis's circle, which whose name Jeremy couldn't even remember, so he can't put, he can't say it here. Um, but of course, Arthur was Tolkien's uh, father's name, as Christopher reminds us in his notes. Um, what is in the box? lost in the dust in this secondhand bookstore. Yeah, of course, Estelle, you're absolutely right. Uh, he is also, Tolkien is also Professor, is also Professor Rashbold as well, right? So this is, this makes the third self-reference uh, in this story. Um, this is, this is the Silmarillion. Remember in The Lost Road, the history of Middle-earth, not the Lost Road story itself, but the volume of the history of Middle-earth called The Lost Road, volume five, um, when we were going not only through the Lost Road material, but through the Quintus Silmarillion stuff there, which it was pretty clear was Tolkien... Remember how we were looking at this? Tolkien compiling the Silmarillion material for publication in 1937? 
the year The Hobbit came out and was doing really well and was super successful, and the publisher was just panting for more. And remember, here's Tolkien being like, oh, I've got more for you, right? And he's putting together the Hlamas, the Book of Tongues, you know, the Tree of Tongues, and... Uh, and the the all and the Ambarcanta and all the other stuff, right? And it's a volume is like uh, here's like you know multiple volumes of like awesome elf lore. This is just what Hobbit readers are going to like most. Um, and of course, it was politely rejected, right? That is to say that the publisher politely explained that no, actually a sequel to The Hobbit is what the public really wants, not all of this old other elvish stuff for the Lay of Lathian or any of that kind of thing, right? So Tolkien set it aside and sat down to write the sequel, and that became The Lord of the Rings. And of course, we've been immersed in that uh, for a couple years now, going through uh, The Return of the Shadow and The Treason of Isengard and The War of the Ring. So you know, he, and he's coming back and doing the Notion Club papers here before he's finished The Lord of the Ring, but he's not forgotten 1937, right? It's been a few years now, but he's not forgotten 1937 when he started preparing that manuscript and sent off a whole bunch of it to the publisher, which never went anywhere. So I think that it's, this is his imagination, I think, of that manuscript, the manuscript that he was putting together, the Quenta Eldelian being the history of the elves. Um, and it ends up, is found briefly and then lost in the 80s uh, in a dusty back room. And nobody even knows that it was there. Um yeah. <laughs> Bree says, if this were a movie, all these Tolkien self-inserts would be played by the same actor. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, but um, anyway, I thought that this was a very, both on the one hand, poignant expression of Tolkien's own anxiety. Right. This is I mean, it seems pretty, you know, dust and anxiety indeed. Right. Um, that seems a very. Uh, uh, autobiographical point in itself, right? Uh, that I think this is very much was Tolkien's thought in the 40s about what was going to happen to the Silmarillion. Um, that it was going to end up, ne- notice, not, not published. It's just a box with manuscript um, uh, pieces in it. So like the manuscript that he sent off to the publisher ends up here in the secondhand room of this bookshop. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, Tarlonio, I agree. It, it, it does end up a little strange that both he and the publisher ended up being right. Um, yes, the publisher was right that they wanted a sequel. The public wanted a sequel to The Hobbit. Uh, but Tolkien was right that, you know, many of the Hobbit readers would be very interested in this additional material. Um, yeah, but anyway, um, So, again, on the one hand, we can see Tolkien's own anxiety, uh, you know, see the auto, the autobiographical touch there. But at the same time, we can see the role that this plays within the Notion Club paper's frame as well. Jeremy being the scholar, right, who almost got a glimpse of this. And notice, notice the parallel here. 
The History of the Elves by John Arthurson. That's the book of stories, essentially, right? Um, this manuscript that Jeremy only got a brief glimpse of, just like, you know, Laudam is getting brief glimpses of uh, Adonaic manuscripts in his visions, right? As we were told, Alfwina and, you know, was going to be getting glimpses of the book of stories. Um, the Quinta Eldelian is the book of stories, right? Um, so the way that this, that kind of self-referential loop that this goes into here is, um, well, I find it particularly delightful. Okay. This was another really fascinating point. Again, thinking back to, um, when we were talking about that transition point between the Ariel saga and the Numenor myth, right? The Numenor story. Um, the remarkable feature of this original version, he's thinking back to the these early manuscript version of the Notion Club papers. The remarkable feature of this original version is, of course, that Laudam's two ghost languages were Quenya and Sindarin, or rather the language that would come to be called Sindarin. Laudam's account in this version thus maintains the linguistic experience of, Ari- of Albo and Errol in The Lost Road. Quote from The Lost Road, Aresian as he called it as a boy, was getting pretty complete. He had a lot of Beleriandic, too, and was beginning to understand it in its relation to Eresian. Remember, it was the two elvish languages that were coming through. Quenya and the language that will someday be called Sindarin were both coming through to Alboin, the main character of, uh, of The Lost Road. So when Tolkien begins the Notion Club papers, Laudam's two languages are those same two, the two elvish, two main elvish languages, right? They're, they're Quenya and Sindarin. The first TypeScript version, F1, follows the manuscript E at the beginning of the section just given. But most of these word recollections, most of these word recollections, etc. In Laudam's description of how the ghost words soon took control and bent my invented language to their own style. But when he comes to tell that, as he sifted the lar- when he comes to tell that as he sifted the large residue of words that would not work in, he made a discovery. Remember when he's sorting the words into different lists, right? His discovery is totally different from that in the original text. So here's Tolkien again doing his thing, right? Going back and revising, keeping the text almost exactly the same and just changing bits here and there. And here's the big bit that he changes, right? Laudam is sorting his words into lists, but now the lists are different. This is where Adunayak first appeared. It may be that my father had been long cogitating this new language, but even if this is so, it would seem that it had not reached a form sufficiently developed to enter as Laudum's second language in Manuscript E. In fact, I doubt that is so. It seems to me overwhelmingly probable that Adunayak actually arose at this time. couple things are really interesting about this to me. Really interesting about this to me. First, the story of Laudum, Laudum, these words coming through, these languages coming through to Laudum, predates the arrival of the Numenor story. So when he was still doing the Ariel saga, presumably, 
we're not doing Numenorian yet. We're just doing the two elf languages because we're going to be about getting and translating in Raymer's multiple senses of the word translating um, the elvish stories, right? Um, but two things that I find most fascinating about this. First, I've been talking about the autobiographical relevance of this stuff uh, to Tolkien, right? And I've been trying to be cautious there, right? We have to be careful not to just assume that everything that he's saying here is actually autobiographical, but at the same time, we can't avoid the fact that some of this clearly is, both in the sense of some of these characters are definitely propounding what seem to be Tolkien's own views, and also, and theories, and what? Wishes? Thoughts? Fantasies? Uh, Anyway, um, and then at the same time, Christopher pointing out all of the (laughs) autobiographical references uh, and things that uh, keep coming out. So we can't avoid the autobiography, but we have to be a little bit cautious. And so one of the things that I said, connecting all the way back to The Lost Road, what felt to me very autobiographical there is the way he described like the words coming through, right? That sense not of inventing, but of discovering languages. If Christopher Tolkien seems to me to be implying here that he believes, Christopher believes, that in the process of writing the Notion Club papers, the Adonaic language started to come through to Tolkien. He had not been planning the Adonaic language, but he suddenly found the Adonaic language taking shape. Words were coming through, and he... So, in fact, he wasn't only basing the character Laudam's experience on his own experience. Rather, he began having the same experience that he was attributing to the character Laudam. As he was describing in the manuscript, Laudam having the experience of having these words from these, all these different words from different languages coming through and him having to sort it out and him, you know, having to apply some philological analysis to all of these random words in order to sort them and figure them out. As Tolkien is describing Laudam having that experience, he, Tolkien, actually has that experience and finds that some of these words are not either Erisaean or Beleriandic, as Alboin would have called them in the Lost Road, but a third and new and different language, Adunaic, which he begins to form up and inserts into the story, right? Um, And gosh, doesn't that begin to sound kind of like the Raymer method? In fact, right? I mean, it's kind of amazing, actually, the way that that happens. And here's the other thing about it that really, really interests me. Remember, and I've spoken about this on various different occasions, 
Tolkien talking about how with him the stories always came, the languages came first and the stories came second, right? Um, it was through developing the the Hlamas, through developing the, the Tree of Tongues, right? Um, this large-scale, highly ambitious language invention project that he began long ago, right? Not only inventing a single language, not only inventing more than one language, but inventing this entire, not only the languages, but the whole philological tree and how they derive from each other and how they were connected in different spin-offs and influences and everything over the years and how those, the narratives of those languages themselves, the philological narratives of those languages become the stories of the Silmarillion. So we've looked at that, especially back in Volume 5 when we were looking at the Thlamas, we were talking about that a lot. And I've referred back to that even during the context of discussing the Notion Club papers. Well, notice what's interesting and relevant about this little tidbit. It didn't, it worked backwards here. This is not a case of him developing the languages and the relationships among the languages and those languages and relationships giving birth to the stories, right? Or the stories kind of taking shape as the necessary context of history for those languages and language shifts that he's inventing. Instead, here we have what seems to be a verifiable instance of it working the other way around for Tolkien. A story which gave birth to a language which led him to discover um, this. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's still not in fact, uh, it's not exactly a counterexample, right? In fact, if anything, you can kind of see it happening in uh, sort of, uh, well, not exactly slow motion, but if we go back a couple slides, you could also wonder when did he write this? Do the Atlantis story and abandon Ariel saga? Was it maybe after the Adonaic language came through? When he's because in the first manuscript, when Ladam is just doing the two Elvish languages, again, that sounds like we're headed towards the Ariel saga, potentially, just like Alboin was. Quite likely. And then Adonaic starts coming through. So Hey, no, we're doing the Atlantis story now because the Atlantean language, the, na- the like the actual native language of the Numenorians is coming through for the first time. He didn't know what their native language was like. He knew about the Elvish languages, but he didn't know about that. And now he does. And so he goes there. But again, the way that like life is imitating art here, right? The way that he first describes these languages coming through first to Alboin and then to Loudum, and then it actually happens in that moment, like it prompts the coming through, is also the story begetting the language. So anyway, I, that is a very fa- that that makes this to me an extremely interesting moment in Tolkien's creative history. All right, just uh, a couple things more. Um, one, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly because um, we're going to get a lot more chance to talk about the Numenorean story itself. 
but I wanted to not miss these because we, we may want to come back to them later on. Um, these are the translations of the Anglo-Saxon that he wrote out. So you'll remember there's the one page um, uh, that we got of the Intangwar, Anglo-Saxon Intangwar, the bit that was translated by, uh, by Professor Rashbold. And of course, Tolkien, being Tolkien, wrote the entire Anglo-Saxon document out of which that page was one page, right? So the, the full book of, of like the one leaf that, um, uh, that Loudon brings to the Notion Club meeting in which Raymer translates and which was included in the story, here's the full text, right? Um, so this is Christopher's translation of the Anglo-Saxon that Tolkien wrote uh, for the original story. So, and then here we get a narrative of Numenor, right? All the seas in the world they sailed, seeking they knew not what, but their hearts were turned ever westward, for they were become greatly desirous of the undying bliss of the Eldalie. And as their power and glory grew, so was their longing and their unquiet ever the more increased. Something. Then the Eldar forbade them to land on Arese, for they were of human kindred and mortal. And albeit the powers had granted them long life, they could not release them from the weariness of the world that comes upon all men ere the end, and they died, even their high kings, descendants of Eärendil, and their lifespan seemed short to the Eldar. For thus had the Almighty ordained it, that they should die and leave this world. But they began to murmur, saying that this prohibition seemed to them unjust. Then they sent out in secret spies to Avalon to explore the hidden knowledge of the Eldar, but they discovered neither lore nor counsel that was of any avail to them. Okay, so just here, what I want to do is just kind of note in passing some salient points of the Numenor story as it's being told, not exactly in full, one could say, but certainly the fullest. We've just been getting uh, snatches mostly of the downfall itself, right? And the black wave and all that kind of thing. But... Here's a, a, a brief version of the full Numenorean story. And of course, it's very familiar to us in many ways, but strikingly different in a couple others, right? Yeah, Estelle, there's one. They sent spies to Tolaresia. So the ban, there's no ban. There is no prohibition. There's no moment of breaking the prohibition. Um, there is a forbidding. The Eldar forbade them to land on Aresia. Like, you can't land here. You can't come here. You can't move in. You can't come here to visit. But they're not, the, the ban of not being able to sail further west than Numenor than they can, you know, than they can see, that's not, that's not in place. And certainly not by the Valar, right? So what we have is the relationship between the Eldar and the Numenorians going hunky-dory for a while. And then after a while, the Eldar are like, you guys are making us uncomfortable, right? Um, you're unquiet as is increasing and um I, we can tell like you're really envious of our immortality and it's starting to creep us out so you can't land anymore you can't land anymore but the Numenorians continue to sail over there and in secret sneak onto Tolaresia trying to steal the secret of eternal life starting to sound a little bit Promethean there maybe okay um It came to pass afterward that the foul servant of the devil, whom the people of the Alfwinas call Sauron, uh, that is, of the elves, uh, call Sauron, grew mightily in the great lands, and he learned of the power and glory of the Westwari. 
and that they were still, remember this is a translation from the Anglo-Saxon, so some of the Anglo-Saxon words are being kept here, and that they were still faithful to God, but were behaving arrogantly nonetheless. Then the king of the West Ware heard news from his mariners concerning Sauron, that he desired to be king over all kings, and to have a more exalted throne than even the heir of Arendel himself possessed. Then he, Tarkalion the king, without counsel of either of the powers without either, sorry, without counsel of either the powers or of the Eldar, sent his ambassadors to Sauron, commanding him to come with all speed to Westfold, there to do homage to the king. And Sauron, dissembling, humbled himself and came, being filled with malice beneath, and designing wickedness against the people of the Westware. He landed then one day at the haven of Romalonde, and straightway he deluded well-nigh all the Numenorians with signs and wonders, for he had great craft in phantoms and in wizardry. And they builded a great temple on that high mountain that was called Menaltiula, that is to say, the Pillar of Heaven, which before was undefiled, and there they did sacrifice unspeakable offerings upon an unholy altar. Thus came the death shadow upon the land of the West Ware. Some of you on the Twitch chat are having a hard time imagining how the Numenorians could uh, be spies in Toleresia. Swear a hat, man. You're fine. <laughs> no, seriously, I think it would have been harder to tell the difference back in those days, but... Um, yeah, so the biggest difference here is Sauron building his temple on what will later be called the Menaltarma. Uh, Menaltula, I found a little harder to say. Um, but um, uh, so that's so the, this story here is very similar, right? Um, but notice how Sauron is not just deceiving the king and like working himself into the king's councils. He starts with an immediate show. He lands and like in the harbor, apparently, right, starts performing signs and wonders and deludes well nigh all the Numenorians. So his conversion of the Numenorians uh, to, you know, sort of become at least to at least to be fearing him happens apparently very quickly. Um, and um, and he and, and the and the the high place, the pillar of heaven itself is defiled uh, in this other story. And I love the phrase, thus came the death shadow upon the la- the death shadow. Death shadow is a great word. Uh, love that. Thus came the death shadow upon the land of the West Wadi. Many years afterward, it came to pass that old age assailed Tarkalion, so that he became exceedingly sad in mind, and he determined then, being goaded by Sauron, to invade Avalon with an army. For Sauron said to him that the Eldar refused to him the gift of everlasting life, wrongfully. The fleets of the Numenorians were as, an, were as uncounted islands in the sea, and their masts were like unto tall trees upon the mountainsides, and their war banners like to thunderclouds, and their sails were blood-red and black. Now we dwell, and then a gap, now we dwell in the land of exile and forget the bliss that once was, and now shall never, shall come again never. Heavy lies upon us the death shadow. Bent is the world. Far now is the land that is fallen low. At the end, 
the following bracketed sentence was added subsequently, that is, Atalanta, which was before called Andor and Vinyamar and Numenor. Vinyamar is interesting as that is a word, a name which Tolkien uses lots of times. Um, yeah. Um, <coughs> notice that the war is with primarily the Eldar. They're invading Avalon. They're invading Toleresia. The Numenorians are here, right? Um, so that's very different. Notice the Valar thus far are not really playing a prominent role in this story at all. We've got the elves, we've got the Numenorians, and we've got Sauron. And that's those that's really I mean again the Valar are acknowledged, right? There's it's not like we, they don't exist. Um but they are uh, not very prominent in the dramatis personae of this story, which is also I think pretty different. Notice also that sense of exile, that sense of banishment, and how the concept of the death shadow is connected with that. Heavy lies upon us, the death shadow. So they, they were not spared from the death shadow. They're not. It's not like the death shadow falls upon those who are the followers of the king, but they're the faithful upon whom the death shadow did not fall. No, it lies heavy on them, right? Even those that escaped. Um, so Elendil comes to Middle-earth, burdened, weighed down with the heavy, with it, with, you know, heavily weighed down with the death shadow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but when those who went before Tarkalion dared to go up into the land and did their great evil, and set fire to the city of Tuna. Then the Lord of the gods grieved, and he prayed to the Almighty, and by the counsel and leave of the Creator the fashion of the world was changed. Osiard, Dalinor, was sundered from the earth, and a great abyss appeared in the midst of Garsedge, the ocean, to the east of, of, of Onati, the lonely isle. And the seas plunged down into the chasm, and all Middle-earth was filled with the noise of the falling waters, and the smoke of the cataracts rose up to heaven above the heads of the everlasting mountains. There perished all the ships of the Westfarers, and all that people were drowned with them. There perished also Tarkalion the Golden, and bright Ilion his queen. They fell both like stars into the darkness, and passed out of all men's knowledge. There were great floods in that time, and tumults of the lands, and Westfold, which was before named Numenor, was cast down into the bosom of Garsedge, and its glory perished. Now, they set fire to, to, to the city of Tuna. Keep in mind... Um... <laughs> yeah. I was... Kid, I was this close... Or, Karita, I was this close to... Um, um, uh, having the subtitle of this slide be Burnt Tuna, uh, but I, I decided not to be over-frivolous at the last moment. Um, keep in mind that this... It seems to be... Tuna, I believe, is located on Toleresia. Still here. Um, the... 
relocation of um, of tuna uh, and the Elvish city of Kor was on Toleresia, and that seemed that's the origin of Tyrian of uh, 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 Tyrian upon tuna, right? Tuna was originally the name of the city, and then it becomes the hill. Um, Tyrian was Kor Tyrian or also Kor. And again, originally that was the city of the elves in Tol Aresia. Um, the shift of like that old elvish city to Valinor uh, and not Tol Aresia is a later thing. Um, so it still seems, I, I think when they're burning the city of Tuna here, they're not landing on Valinor, they're still landing in Tol Aresia. Again, their beef is with the elves, which means the intervention of the Valar here and their prayers to um their prayers to to the almighty are on behalf of the elves the elves are suffering the elves of toleresia are suffering which remember super important why cuz who's in who's in toleresia the exiles the exiled elves right who have only been like quasi forgiven um the elves of Toleresia are still living a kind of tragic existence because they rebelled against the Valar and they're not, they've not been allowed back to Valinor. They've, they, can, they can come back to Toleresia, but not to Valinor. Um, so it is they who are suffering at the hands of Tarkalion and the other Numenorians and Tunis on fire. And so it is an intervention by the Valar on behalf of those who were the, the, um, uh, uh, the forgiven, mostly forgiven rebels. Yeah, Matt, I agree. Uh, Tuna upon toast would be a good subtitle for this slide as well. Um, the other thing, and then I'll end with this. Um, I had another moment looking at this passage. The word Ossiard. Yeah. Um, remind me, actually, I won't talk about that tonight. Remind me to start with that next time. Remind me to talk about Ossiard being sundered from the earth um, next time. Uh, and I will, uh, I will talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah. Well, no, no, that's okay. I'll just talk about it now because I, I won't say I just won't say all that much about it. But yeah, Tarlonio and Estelle, as you guys are saying in the in the Twitch chat, um, is that supposed to sound like Asgard? Sure, sounds like Asgard to me. Uh, and Tarlonio, yeah, Tarlonio says, "Is the straight road a rainbow bridge?" I have to confess, Tarlonio, until I reread the name Osiard here for Valinor in in the Anglo-Saxon text. The connection, the similarity between the straight road and the Bifrost literally never occurred to me. Like, I just, partly it's because I don't have the same affinity for uh, Norse mythology that Lewis and Tolkien shared. Um, so I don't think of Norse mythology first in general. Um, but yeah, like, I was ashamed when I, when I only just made that. But yes, the idea that there exists this path. Right, that there is the land of the gods, and there is this path which is sometimes there and sometimes not. Um, which you know, so if you kind of take the straight road on the one hand, and you take the Alora Male from the older 
uh, uh, you know, the rainbow path of dreams uh, from the um, uh, from the Book of Lost Tales conception and kind of bring them together. Yeah, yeah, you kind of have the Bifrost, which means, of course, uh, from this point of view, that the Bifrost, uh, the Rainbow Bridge, becomes a a a, a sort of memory, right, of the straight road, just exactly like. Laudum has been saying how the Germanic peoples, right, have conti- have kept alive that that what is that one essential story that they have kept alive, right? That though all the roads are now crooked, there there exists still a straight road, right? It's there, um, and so yeah, no, so we clearly we hear echoes of that in Norse mythology, right? That there is a bridge, a mystic bridge, which connects the realm of the gods. With Middle Earth, yep, yep, uh, we get uh, we see here the origins of of that myth. I think uh, from within Tolkien's frame. Okay, next time. So having done this little review, or rather glimpse at where the Numenorean story stands at this point, we will move on to the drowning of Anadune next time. Um, so we are done with the Notion Club papers, as I promised. Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight, and I will see you guys next week. I will see some of you sooner than that, uh, those of you who will be at New England Moot this coming weekend. So I look forward to seeing you there. Everybody else, I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.